0: If you have your Bibles, get them open to Mark chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, there's a black one in a seat back in front of you. If you get to page 888, you'll be at Mark chapter 2. And so you can join in with us. We're glad to have you here. Uh, I told Greg in the back, I said, there's either a lot of new faces here today or I'm suffering from memory loss. And we counted up and the evidence is pretty strong in both directions. And so it could just be 50-50, but... If you're a guest, we're, we're really excited that you're here today and uh, we, want to, we want to make sure that you know that. Um, there are, uh, there are uh, guest cards, connect cards in the seatbacks in front of you. There's a QR code if you want to do it digitally. You can just scan that on your phone and go to a place. And we'd love to be able to contact you and reach out to you and thank you for coming. If you don't want to do any of that, that's fine. Then you can stop by our welcome desk on the way out, and we have a gift for you for coming today. Uh, but we want to make sure we know how much we appreciate that you are trying something new that can be awkward and difficult, and we're glad that you uh, showed us the grace of being here today. And for the rest of you, we're always glad that you're here. And I'm going to ask um, that you join me in a word of prayer as we, as we launch out in this time. So let's pray. Father, we are thankful for each and every person who's here, everybody who's joining us online right now, or everybody who's who set aside this time. Uh, to, to dedicate it to you. And we're grateful for the chance we've already had to worship you and for the promises you were word that you you were enthroned. You, you, God, you inhabit the praises of your people. Uh, so, Lord, you've already met us uh, in our groups this morning. You've already met us in, in the worship of your name. You've already met us in the fellowship and connection. And so we pray that you just continue that now. And that you'd be the one who speaks loudest um, and, and clearest this time, that your, your word would not return to you void, uh, but would, come, uh, would, would, would accomplish the purposes that you've set forth for it to accomplish. And that we, uh, as hearers today, Lord, um, that we would respond humbly to you. And we ask all this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. So I don't know if you guys know this, but the World Series wrapped up last night. Uh, I didn't know that till this morning. Uh, I woke up. I, it wasn't just because I went to bed early last night. I woke up this morning to see what happened in the Alabama-LSU game, and I was shocked to see that the World Series was over. And this was a thing that if you know my past, you know I would have tracked it, right? It was not, uh, not long ago, I was a big baseball fan, um, and I was a Cubs fan, and there was a time in my life where I waited my entire life to see the Cubs World Series. Now, not as long as others. Right, I only waited 35 years. Uh, when the Cubs were in the World Series, my dad was 70, and he'd never even seen them in a World Series. Uh, my grandfather passed away as a Cubs fan at age 94 and never saw them win one. Right? So I only had to wait 35 years. But I remember the excitement of it, and I remember how I thought, man, this is kind of the pinnacle of my sports experience, and now I feel absolutely nothing towards them. Not anger, right? Not, not, not just nothing, just pure emptiness. It's because that team of all like captured my heart and attention. I was more excited about them, and I watched as the owner of the team in one afternoon traded away all the core pieces of that team in one day to save himself money. And what's left is just total apathy, not just to the Cubs, but also just to the sport in general. I just feel nothing. Now, maybe I'm a healthier person because of that. I don't know, right? But there's one thing that I really miss about caring about baseball. You know what it is? It's messing with Cardinals fans. That was what I enjoyed more than anything. It's always been a fun rivalry, and, and I, and I, and I, but now I try. Like, I try to work something up. I'm like, I don't care. Like, it's just not the same, right? But I do still have some, some pretty good memories of it in the past. And, and for one instance is this. That, you know, in all the history of baseball, there's only one time the Cubs and Cardinals have ever faced each other in the playoffs, and the Cubs won. It was like the heavens opened, and it was glorious, and I was there. Like, I was actually there, okay, because uh, for game two of that series, my brother found tickets to the Cubs-Cardinals game in St. Louis, and he called me, and this is how he phrased the question. He's like, I don't know what you're doing tonight, but do you want to go to the belly of the beast with me? And I was like, absolutely, let's go, you know, and so we went and we drove to St. Louis, and we were prepared the whole way there to kind of walk into enemy territory, and one of the things that was most surprising me about that evening was how many Cubs fans were there. It was almost like a 60-40 split, because right? we were the only ones that did it. And so what they ended up creating was one of the neatest atmospheres that I've ever watched a game in. And it's this, that no matter what happened, a whole large section of the stadium was cheering. Right? No matter what, at, what occurred on the play. And so who cheered, right depending on what happened during the play. If it was a good play for the Cubs, everybody in blue would cheer. If it was a good play for the Cardinals, everybody in red would cheer. And even though we were watching the exact same game, there was vastly different reactions, including people sitting to my left and to my right of me. Right? And now, I mentioned that because we are starting chapter 2 in Mark this morning, and we're going to read this morning about an event in the life of Jesus. And there's a lot of people going to be there, okay? And they're all going to witness the exact same thing. But the reactions to this event, the reactions of Jesus were vastly different, even though they're all watching the same scene. And what we're going to see is similar to what I experienced in that baseball game. The people, the people who'd walked into that stadium that night had already made their minds up. They were coming in, predetermined who they were going to root for, and that influenced their reactions. And oftentimes people come to God and they approach Jesus in similar ways. They come to him with a predetermined posture that actually shapes their response because what we believe drives what we do. What we believe shapes how we think. What we believe influences how we react to the things that we see in life and more. And this is why, as sinners, as sinners, it's why we need God to draw us to himself. Right? It's why we need the Holy Spirit to convict us of our sin and our need for him. And it's why the most damaging posture that anyone can ever take towards Jesus is the one of being just fully closed off to him and uninfluencable in that. And so yes, as we often do, we're going to look today at what Jesus does and says in this story. But what I really want us to notice this morning is how the way that we approach God actually shapes our responses to him. And then let that challenge our beliefs. Let that challenge our convictions. Let that challenge the way that we also approach the Lord. And so I'm going to invite uh, Drew Almond up. He's going to read today's passage to you. Um, Drew's a Lions fan, so if he knows anything about long-suffering like Cubs fans do, Drew would know that. And his team is still terrible. So, you know, just reach out to him this morning and tell him it's all right. But if you could, please stand with him for the reading of God's word this morning.
1: Haven't even gotten the playoffs. (laughs) Good morning. When he entered Capernaum again after some days, it was reported that he was at home. So many people gathered together that there was no more room, not even in the doorway, and he was speaking the word to them. They came to him bringing a paralytic carried by four of them. Since they were not able to bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and after digging through it, they lowered the mat on which the paralytic was lying. Seeing their faith, Jesus told the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. But some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, why does he speak like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Right away, Jesus perceived in his spirit that they were thinking like this within themselves and said to them, why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk? But so that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He told the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Immediately he got up, took the mat, and went out in front of everyone. As a result, they were all astounded and gave glory to God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. Thanks, Drew.
0: You guys have a seat. Please keep your Bibles open there to Mark chapter 2. As always, if they supporting verses, we're going to put them on the screens for you, but we really want to dive in and focus on that uh, passage today. And, uh, and just a reminder, I'm sure most of you are aware of this, these chapter breaks, they're added in later, okay? They, they mean nothing to Mark. Mark didn't write in chapters, okay? And so this, this story uh, for Mark comes right off the story from last week that the, the ends chapter one. And so last week, just as, as a reminder, because it does play into the scene that we find Jesus in this week is... Chapter 1 ends with the story of Jesus healing a leper, right? There's this man in this really desperate state. It's hard to be more desperate than a leper in the first century. And he has his life changed in an instant when Jesus heals him. And then immediately after, Jesus gives him these really clear instructions, and the guy goes and does the exact opposite. He disobeys him, right? And we saw the results of that. Chapter 1 ends in verse 45 by saying the result is that Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, Right, and we see here in chapter 2 that, that that reality of Jesus' life has not gone away. Right? In verse 1, he, he has stayed out in the wilderness for some days. They've been camping out there, and he's got to come back into town, likely to get supplies, because you can't, you can't camp forever. And so he comes back to Capernaum, and, he, and they stop at a house. Most people think this was Peter's house. And the scene immediately gets intense because thanks to the disobedience of the leper last week and, and just some of the things Jesus is doing, uh, what we see is even early here in Mark, Jesus' life and mission are already getting harder. Right? We're, we're barely into the book, right? and the challenges are growing. Because as soon as he's back in Capernaum, word spreads throughout that town that he's, he's returned, and they rush to the house where he's at, and they fill it full, and then it starts spilling out through the doorways and onto the streets. And, and I want you to think, especially if you're an introvert today, like think of just a throng of people just pressing in on you, trying to get as close as they can to you everywhere you go, and how suffocating that experience would be. Now, in addition, not everybody who's there is there for Jesus. In fact, many of them are not on his team, right? His, his rise in fame and popularity have, have actually made him a target because the religious leaders of Israel have identified Jesus Christ as a threat, as a threat to their standing as the religious authority of the day. And so wherever he goes, right, some of them are, are, are always there. Luke uh, tells us of this event in his gospel in chapter 5, and here's a detail he adds for us, Luke 5, 17. It says, on one of those days where he's teaching, and this is the day that we're reading about in Mark 2, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who'd come from every village of Galilee and Judea Judea and also from Jerusalem. There's a whole bunch of these guys. They're coming from every direction, but they're not coming to learn. They're not coming out of excitement for what's happening. They're not coming to support Jesus. You know what they're doing? They're coming to watch his every move and listen to his every word and scour and look for any way that they might be able to attack or discredit him. Now, can you imagine living under that kind of level of scrutiny? Having those people, everywhere you go, having a group of those people with that attitude around you all the time, that would be a draining, miserable experience. Add to that that those that thought they were there for him, they had much different goals in mind than he did. Back in chapter 1, verses 32 to 34, tells us that he's been in this town before. The last time he was in Capernaum, there was a similar scene. He set up in a house, probably the same house, and they brought, the whole town brought their sick and their hurting to him, and he healed them. And so here in chapter 2, he's back, there's a whole crowd pressing in on him, and they all want something from Jesus, but they all want a healing. They want to see something they'd never seen before. Ultimately, what they want him to be is the Messiah, which means, in their minds, he's going to raise up an army and overthrow Rome. It, in their minds, because Jesus here, life is just going to keep getting better and better and better. And the reason why is because he's the greatest genie ever. He can grant wish after wish after wish, and it never will run out. But Jesus isn't interested in any of their plans. He didn't come to establish an earthly kingdom. He came to establish a spiritual one. He wasn't nearly as interested in physical healings as he was in spiritual ones. Which is why verse 2 that drew red for us tells us, right? That Jesus didn't gather this house to heal people. What was he doing? He was speaking the word to them. Jesus is going to stick to his mission. Yeah, it's harder now. It's more complicated now, it's riskier now, it's more difficult now, but he's not going to deviate. In fact, even when he does heal like he does in this story, there's a bigger meaning behind it. We find Jesus surrounded by this throng of people, yet so few of them, if any, understand what he's actually doing. Now, that's not because Jesus isn't an effective communicator. He's the greatest communicator ever. It's not because Jesus was insufficient in some way. He's fully sufficient. And so what's going on? Well, it's the same thing that we deal with today. We often cause our own spiritual blindness. You see, Mark lays out the facts of the event for us in order. These facts are indisputable. They would have been seen by everyone there. What happens in this story is basically this. Jesus enters Capernaum, and he goes to this house, and word spreads that he's there. And so people come to this house, and Jesus begins to teach them. And there are four men who have a paralyzed friend and they, they're carrying this guy in a mat trying to get him to Jesus so that, so that they can, his, their friend can be healed and they can't get in, right? They couldn't get in themselves. They definitely can't get this guy in a mat in. They can't find their way through the door. And so they find their way up on the roof and they cut out a hole of a roof of a house they don't live in. And they lower this man down on a mat using ropes and, and, he, and they lay him down right at the feet of Jesus. And Jesus looks at this man notes the faith of all involved, and then he says to the man, son, your sins are forgiven, which creates a whole other dust up, which we'll get to in a minute, right? And then he heals the man. And the man who previously was paralyzed stands up, picks up his mat, and walks out the door that he couldn't previously walk in. Now those are the facts, That's that's what happened on this night, and that is what was witnessed by every single person who was in audience. And yet, the reactions to it are wildly different. The religious leaders are left this event furious and fuming. There's a whole crowd there that left this event in wonder and amazement. There are four friends who left this event feeling accomplished and overjoyed, and there was a paralyzed man who left this event not only healed but forgiven. The same event, same Jesus, created so many different reactions, and they were based on what everyone brought into that night already with them. It was their beliefs, it was their posture that shaped their response. It was one group in particular that saw their need in full, and it was this man and his friends. They saw their problem. This guy couldn't walk. They knew they couldn't do anything to fix it. They believed Jesus could. And so the fact that they could see their need actually allowed them to see him as their solution. And they left having been impacted by the grace and love and power of Jesus in an unforgettable way. There's another group there that didn't see their need. And that was the crowd. They came because they saw Jesus as a compelling, interesting show. And to be fair, he didn't disappoint And verse 12 tells us, they left astounded, saying, we've never seen anything like it. They got exactly what they wanted. But there's a third group. And this was a group that refused to even consider that they would ever even have a need. And that was the religious leaders. And they didn't come to learn. They didn't come to receive or grow or change or be influenced. They saw Jesus and his rise in popularity as a threat to themselves, and it was in their interest to belittle and dismiss and attack Jesus' character. And they left furious and fuming because their problems only got bigger. But see, outside of the four friends and the paralyzed man, almost everyone there seemed to miss the point of it all. The point wasn't that a paralyzed guy could walk. The point was that the Son of Man, the Messiah, was in their midst. The point was that the Son of Man has the authority and power to forgive sins, and that changes everything. But if we don't see our need, then we refuse to see our problem. And no matter how great the solution is, we aren't moved by the solution. We're going to remain distracted by a sideshow, getting what we want out of it. We're going to keep building our own kingdom or see new things as a threat. We, we miss out and don't see what God has been up to all along because no matter how great the stories seem to get, and they kept getting great with Jesus, forgiveness remains the single greatest miracle of all. You see, there's, there's a bit of irony in this story, and I, and I hope we don't miss it after they carry their friend they, they cut open the roof and they lower him down there's this really cool detail in verse 5 verse 5 says seeing their faith jesus told the paralytic son your sins are forgiven now the first part of that verse it, it, jesus notes not just the faith of the paralyzed man but also his friends that went through all that effort to get him there and I, and I mentioned that just to say this i just thought that was a nice touch by jesus he, he saw he saw their faith in him, he saw their belief, and he saw the effort they put through, and he made note of it. But what Jesus doesn't say after seeing that is, he doesn't turn to this guy who's paralyzed and can't walk and say, Son, you are healed, get up and walk. Instead, no, he turns and looks at the man, and he says, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, I have to imagine at that point, that line was confusing for everybody else in that house. Because think about it the paralyzed guy is lying there with one hope. What's he hoping for? He's hoping to walk. His friends have gone through that entire effort getting him to Jesus. Why? Because they wanted him to walk. There's a crowd who's seen his teaching get interrupted. This, this would have caused quite a commotion They have the roof torn open and a guy lowered down. And they're assuming, all right, this is, this is kind of what we came for. We're going to see a healing here. And then there's religious leaders bracing themselves for yet another miracle, another story, another rise in the fame of Jesus. And they're kind of ready kind of for it to happen. And he's healed enough in this town that they, all these people think Jesus is predictable, but he's not. Because he throws everyone a curveball. When he turns and looks at this man, he says, son, your sins are forgiven. Now he's light years ahead of everybody in that house. He knows what he's doing. And remember, his goal, his ultimate goal isn't the healing, isn't physical healing. He was not sent to do miracles. These miracles were just validated his identity and his authority and his power. He tells us why he came. Luke 19 For the Son of Man has come to seek and save the lost. He came to establish the kingdom of God, he came to bring us into it, he came to make us right with God by offering us forgiveness. That's why he came. And this unpredictability did exactly what he intended for it to do. Look at verse 6. So some of the scribes were sitting there questioning their hearts. Why does he speak like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? I mean, think about it. If you're in their shoes, what you're there for tonight is that you came for the trap. You came to trip him up on anything he might do or say, and now you've got it. Because this man, this Jesus, he is claiming to be able to forgive sins, and only God can do that. And so you've got him right where you want him. And you're already making plans to use this and discredit him, but he's not done throwing curveballs. Look at verse 8. Right away, Jesus perceived in the spirit that they were thinking like this within themselves and said to them, why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easy to say to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk. Now imagine how weirded out you'd be by that experience. You're standing there, and there's somebody that you don't like, there's somebody that you're there because you're skeptical of, and you're, you are actively thinking negative thoughts about them in your head, and you don't say them out loud, and they turn and answer you just as if you said it out loud. And you would understand that moment that they can read your mind. Would that not creep you out a little bit? And then he has a challenge for them. And this is where the irony comes in, okay? Okay. He says, I got a question for you. Which is harder? To say to this man that his sins are forgiven or to tell him, pick up your mat and go home. You see, there's no visible or physical evidence of forgiveness, is there? It's entirely a spiritual reaction. And the problem with that is this, is that anybody can say it. I could stand before you today and wave my hands over this crowd and say, I forgive you. You are forgiven of all your sins. And that wouldn't do a thing. It would just make me a heretic, and it wouldn't accomplish anything. But I could say it. Anybody can say it. You know what I can't do? I can't look at a paralyzed person and say, get up and walk. So look at verse 10. He says, but so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he told the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Immediately he got up, took the mat, and went out in front of everyone. It's an amazing miracle. Just real quick, did you notice the difference from last week? What's this guy do? This paralyzed man does exactly everything Jesus tells him to do. Because you see, throughout this chapter, there's been these little bits of evidence of, of deeper faith. Last week, the leper believed that Jesus could physically heal him. But this guy, this paralyzed man had a faith that led him to a place of obedience and trust and surrender. He knew his need for Jesus was deeper than just a physical level, which is why Jesus not only healed him but forgave him. And I've been mentioning irony, tw- I've mentioned it twice now. The irony is this, okay? The irony is that, that at this moment, everyone is astounded, and the religious leaders have been put in their place. There's nothing they can say now. And this man's friends are ecstatic, and this guy's walking home, and that was the least powerful thing that just happened. Of the two, that was the easier thing for Jesus. Because why? it's a lot easier just to say your sins are forgiven than it is to heal somebody who's paralyzed, It's a whole lot harder to actually make forgiveness to a holy God possible. You see, he healed this man with just a word. This was well within Jesus' power. But he's going to make forgiveness possible for this man and any other who approach him in faith with the sacrifice of his own body. He'll be beaten to a point where Isaiah 52 prophesied that he won't even look human. He'll be whipped with a whip that tears the flesh off of his back. He'll have five to seven inch metal spikes driven through the biggest nerves of his body. He'll be abandoned by every other person of the Trinity for the first and only time and he will feel the full force of God the Father's wrath for sin unlaid on him. It was such a cost, such a burden that the night before the Son of God was trembling and shaking and sweating drops of blood because he knew what was coming. See, we cannot lose sight of the greatest miracle of all time, that the Son of Man has the authority to forgive sins. That we as sinners, as rebellious, unholy, unclean, unworthy sinners, can actually be made right with a perfect and holy God. Not because of anything that we have done, but because of what Jesus did for us. We whose bodies are breaking down, who know nothing but death and decay, can live in perfect, in perfection forever because of what Jesus did for us. Man, I I want you to preach the gospel to yourself all the time. You, You need to hear the good news of Jesus. I need to find my hope and my identity in it. But let's please pray against ever getting familiar with it. Let's fight to remember that the greatest miracle of all is that we who are in Jesus Christ are forgiven in full because that changes everything. It's remarkable that this paralyzed man walked out of that house. But he walked, and that's going to change the rest of his earthly life, and then he's going to die like everybody else. But the forgiveness of Jesus opened up life for all eternity for him. And if we don't recognize forgiveness as the greatest miracle ever, it's either because A, we don't know how great our need for it is, or B, we don't realize how great Jesus' solution for it is, or C, it's a combination of both. You see, we see in this story an amazing event, an amazing Jesus. We also see a variety of reactions to this to the same thing. And so, as we think about our response to this same event, the same story, and the same Jesus this morning, I, I want to. There's a few encouragements I want to give you, and the first is this: is to just be the paralytic, because here's the reality: I'm sick, and you are sick, and we are in desperate need of healing. Because our sickness is our sin. You see, it's in our very nature to sin. It, it, It takes no effort for me to sin. In fact, it takes effort not to. And so we all need healing, just like the paralyzed man. But we need it in the most important context, and that is spiritually. Far too often we underestimate just how damaging our sin is. We think it's no big deal. We think that somehow we can, we can bargain with God, that we can make our good outweigh our bad, and we can counteract it that way, and there's nothing that's further from the truth. My sin separates me from a holy God. It makes me hostile towards him. I'm an enemy to him because of that. It depraves my mind. It harms my relationship. My sin kills everything it touches, including me. My sin puts me in debt to a holy God that that I cannot pay. My sin is the reason that I will die one day, and if it's not paid for by somebody besides me, it will condemn me to hell forever. Which is why this paralyzed guy is the perfect example for us. Because spiritually, our sin paralyzes us, it puts us in a state of helplessness. This guy could never have gotten Jesus on his own, he couldn't have worked harder. And put out more effort and somehow gotten there, he'd have never made it. He literally had to be picked up and carried and laid down at the feet of Jesus. And even there, he couldn't do anything. He couldn't offer Jesus anything. He could only just lay there hoping to be healed. He was powerless to change his situation. And I think that's precisely why he was healed. We are powerless to change our state before God. We cannot fix our sin. We cannot make ourselves right with God. We cannot earn our way to him. We cannot ever earn eternal life in heaven. In front of a holy God, there's absolutely nothing that we can offer. All we can do is just merely lay before him and offer nothing. You see, when you see that truth, that is when you're saved. When you realize, I can bring God nothing I'm in a desperate, desperate need of forgiveness. I'm in desperate, desperate need of saving. I'm in desperate, desperate need of eternal life. And there's nothing I can do about that. And so I'm going to trust in Jesus and in his power and his death and resurrection. I'm going to ask him to bring life where there is death and forgiveness, to where there's sin, and he does it. Because he paid our price in full, because the blood of Jesus Christ is sufficient to forgive the sins of any who will come to him. And all we have to do is see our need And then place our faith in him to do it. I mean, this crowd, they they were astonished and amazed according to verse 12, right? They're walking out. We've never seen anything like it. That's not all bad, is it? But they didn't leave healed, did they? The only one who was healed was the one who saw his need in full. So please, if if you're just checking Jesus out, I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're checking church out. But my encouragement to you is please don't be a fan of Jesus. Please don't be an admirer of his. Don't read the Bible just to be amazed at what he did. Don't ever miss the fact that you're the paralytic. Astonishment has nothing on surrender. The only thing that any of us can ever do is to throw ourselves before the mercy and grace of Jesus Christ and beg for his forgiveness and hope and life. And when we do that, he gives it freely. We have nothing to offer him. Let's not carry ourselves as if we do. Second... Please don't be the religious leaders. There's a phrase used a lot in the Bible. Jesus said a lot. Let anyone who has ears, let him hear and listen. Jesus in Matthew 5 said, blessed are the pure in heart. Why? Because they will actually see God. Now, everybody has eyes, right? Everybody has ears. And so what is getting at when, when, when Jesus says this in God's word? I think, I think it's what we just read. Jesus in this house in Capernaum, he put on full display his love and his authority and his forgiveness. Everybody there saw the exact same thing, but they didn't all exactly see it, did they? They didn't all actually hear it, did they? Yeah, the crowd might have missed Jesus' bigger picture, but that group of religious leaders just missed all of it. They got none of what they were supposed to get. And here's why. You want to know why? They couldn't view this event through any lens other than how it would affect them. They funneled this entire experience through the lens of what about me? And they couldn't see it from an angle that was beyond themselves. And therein lies the issue. See, often in life, whenever we get in a bind or we get upset or been out of shape, it's often because we're only seeing things in light of ourselves, our own little circle. Which means that we have the capabilities of looking at the same thing that's exciting other people. The same thing that God is up to. The same thing that he's doing that's benefiting others. And the only thing that we can feel towards it is mad or skeptical or put out. Now, these guys were supposed to be the religious leaders of that day. They were supposed to be the ones who had known the Lord the longest and trusted his goodness the most. And they were the ones that completely missed out on the biggest news ever, that God was in their midst, that forgiveness was possible, and attorneys would be changed. They were there. They witnessed it. And they still missed it, and they left this night shaking their heads, scoffing, skeptical, angry, and upset. This is a posture that followers of Jesus must do everything they can to avoid. pray and ask the Lord to grant you the eyes to see beyond yourself. Ask him to grant you the ears to hear what he is saying, to follow where he is leading, the wisdom to recognize what he is doing so you can move beyond the scoffing and just get to the freedom of joyous surrender. It's a better way to live. And then lastly, be the friends. I have a theory. I can't prove it. Don't hold me to it, all right? My theory is this. We know from Mark chapter 1, this is not Jesus' first time in Capernaum. We know he's set up at that house before and healed multiple people. My theory is this. I think these four friends, at least one of them, had been healed by Jesus himself. And the reason I think that is because they are just so convinced of what Jesus can do. I'm guessing that at least part of them, some of them personally experienced it. Because they were not to be Stopped. Effort, time, inconvenience, risk, interruption, unwanted attention, they plowed through all of it to get their friend to Jesus. Now today, I don't know if you know this, but today is the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. Some of you grabbed uh, some prayer guides we had for you by the bulletin on your way in. But did you know, right, did you know that throughout the church's history, the majority of its greatest periods of growth has been in the face of persecution? Do you know that today, that's not, that's not a historical fact, today, the highest rates of Christian conversions today are in persecuted countries, which means this, that in those places, there are people taking a tremendous risk. They are putting their lives and their freedom and their health and more at stake just for the opportunity to tell other people about Jesus Christ. And do you know why? Because they know he's worth it. Because they have a confidence deep within themselves that he can indeed change the lives of those they're sharing that hope with. See, the friends of this paralytic knew that Jesus would change their life, change the life of their friend if they could just get him there. There are persecuted brothers and sisters around the world who are sharing the hope of Jesus at their own risk because they know that Jesus will change the lives of any of their friends who believe. It turns out one of the greatest motivators in evangelism is an unshakable belief that Jesus Christ is worth it. That he is capable to forgive, he's capable of changing turns, and he will do it if people come to him. And what I want you to really know is this, that same Jesus who healed the man at Capernaum stands at the ready today. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So imagine with me, Imagine having your greatest need met and experience the greatest miracle there is, to be forgiven in full, to have the promise of eternal life. It can be yours today in Jesus Christ if you simply believe in him. Imagine going through this life and seeing more of the glorious, wondrous things that God is up to, having less skepticism and less anger and less edge and more faith and more more softness and more joy and more freedom. That too can be yours today in Jesus Christ if you ask him to give you the eyes to see. And imagine seeing the lives of your friends and your loved ones changed by Jesus. You can have a part in that by pushing through all the barriers and sharing the hope of Christ knowing that he can indeed change their life. All of this that was available in Mark chapter two, all of it is available to us. But it depends on how we see him. Because how we see Jesus affects what we believe about him, and what we believe about him shapes and drives what we do. And So I'm going to wrap up this time by asking God to remove scales from our eyes, helping us all see him the way this paralyzed man and his friends did. Let's pray. Father, there is nothing in creation more glorious and wondrous than Jesus Christ. There's nothing more powerful, nothing more authoritative, nothing more gracious and loving, nothing that's better for us than Jesus Christ. And yet, Second Corinthians 4 talks about scales over our eyes that keep us from seeing the light of the glory of the gospel. Lord, most often we're the cause of our own spiritual blindness. So I pray that you would give us eyes to see this morning. God, for those who walked into this room today, having never placed their faith in Jesus Christ, would you help them to see their need right now? See how desperate of a state they are in before you, how they owe you a debt they cannot pay, and they are bound for hell without your intervention. Lord, where they see Jesus as the hope and the solution, the answer they have needed their entire life, surrender to him and believe in him today. God, for those of us who've tasted that forgiveness and tasted that freedom and yet still carry way too much unnecessary angst and anger and edge and skepticism, Lord, would you remove the remaining scales from our eyes and help us to see what you're up to. Help us to see scenarios in our life beyond ourselves, beyond, stop funneling through everything through the question of what about me and just ask, God, what are you up to here? How can I be a part of it? And then, Lord, would you give us the eyes to see our neighborhoods, our homes, our families, our places of work, what what they could look like if the gospel of Jesus Christ changed those places and touched those lives and saved those souls. And would that vision drive us to be these friends, to have a confidence that that you will indeed save souls, that you will draw people to yourself if, 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 if we just join you in it. May that inspire us to go and work through every barrier, overcome every, to tear off whatever roofs we need to tear off in order to bring people we love to the feet of Jesus Christ. God, would you do this, not even for our sake, but for the sake of those outside of ourselves, the sake of those who don't even call this church home yet, in the sake and the glory of the name of Jesus Christ. We pray this in his powerful name. Amen. Before we dismiss you all this morning and wrap up our service, we're going to give you some time to to pray and wrestle with the Lord, maybe uh, deal with some things he's put on your heart or things he's said to you this morning. So please uh, take advantage of these couple minutes that we've set aside for you to pray to him and and, uh, do not waste them.